You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Jets podcast for Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. And today's episode is brought to you by Visa. Help support your local businesses. Whether they're your corner stores, coffee spots, or favorite shops, local businesses have always been on your team, supporting you and your community. But right now, more than ever, local businesses need our support. So let's be there for them. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses. And look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with a contactless visa to help support your community. Because where and how you shop matters. Visa. Everywhere you want to be. Official partner of the NFL. Today we have our weekly mailbag show. Thanks so much to everybody who sent in questions. Let's begin. Jason writes, In the same city as the Jets, the Knicks and Rangers have arguably the worst owner in sports, James Dolan. However, the Rangers have a great president and general manager that keep Dolan out of all business decisions. It seems to really be working as the organization is turning it around. The Rangers are not completely there yet, but the fan base will tell you that ownership is not a problem. Why are these two owners so involved with the Jets and the Knicks, knowingly ruining the franchise, but not the Rangers. Dolan basically lets his organizational president run the hockey team, but continuously interferes with the Knicks, even though he has a president there too. Same with Johnson and his president. I know you don't cover hockey, but this is a business operation question, and I'm baffled at how some owners let the professionals handle the team and some don't. Even worse, in this case, we have a horrible owner that thinks that leaves one team alone like he should, but ruins the other team. So I think Jason's frustrated with the Knicks as as well as the Jets, which is understandable. Jason actually touches on one of the weirdest things in New York sports that nobody talks about. And that's the fact that when it comes to the New York Rangers, James Dolan, who has the reputation for being maybe the worst owner in all of professional sports, actually does a pretty good job. And it's for the reasons Jason mentioned. You, know, you look at the last decade for the Rangers, they were in the Stanley Cup Finals in 2014. They were in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012 and 2015 as well. They were one of the final eight teams in 2013 and 2017. So they they had a long run of success there. And maybe a bounce or two, they could have won the Stanley Cup. Maybe two. So they weren't that far off. And then things kind of declined, so they went into a rebuild. And it looks like they're on their way to having a very successful rebuild. So why are the Rangers run so much better than the Knicks and the Jets? And I think Jason touched on it. It's the owner hires people and then lets them do their job and does not meddle in business. He has no in in affairs. He has no business meddling in. And you look at the Johnsons. The Johnsons are constantly meddling with the operation of the of the New York Jets. James Dolan's constantly meddling in the operation of the Knicks. You look at the stuff the Johnsons have done, whether it's force Rex Ryan onto a coach, whether it's demand Darrell Rivas be traded, whether it's demand of coaching candidates in 2019 that you have to hire a certain, you have to hire certain assistants in order to get the job. I mean, I could go on. The Johnsons meddle and it really damaged, maybe they don't meddle as much as James Dolan does, but it really damages the franchise. You know, why do they do it? Well, I think a lot of it's ego. I think a lot of it's they think that, you know, when you're in a position of control, you think you know more than you do. It's always important to know what you don't know. And neither the Johnsons nor James Dolan know what they don't know. They think that they are savvier than they really are. 
And that's one of the reasons I think the Rangers are so well is that Dolan understands that he knows nothing about hockey, so he leaves it to the professionals. Whereas Dolan thinks he knows a lot about basketball, and I think he probably cares more about the Knicks than the Rangers. So he meddles in, in the business. And that's what happened with the Jets. The The ownership here does, I mean, and it's gotten worse since Chris Johnson's taken over because I don't think Woody Johnson knows a lot about football, but Chris Johnson knows absolutely nothing about running an NFL team. I mean, he knows zero. In fact, I would say the worst decision, Woody Johnson's made a lot of bad decisions as owner of the Jets. The absolute worst decision was putting his brother in charge of the team when he left. And I think ultimately, if you listen to Chris Johnson, I mean, Chris Johnson thinks he knows a lot about the league. Chris Johnson thinks he knows better than everybody. He talks about how Gase is better than our fans give him credit for being. Well, how is that so? Well, Chris Johnson thinks he's at the time Gase was hired. Chris Johnson said, I, I'm not trying to win Twitter. I'm trying to win games as though he knew better than anybody else. He doesn't know better than anybody else. He thinks he's smarter than he is. And that's ultimately the problem. The worst type of leader is somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, but thinks they're smarter than everybody else. I mean, just think about the worst leader you can imagine. Think about the worst leader leader you've ever experienced in your life. Good chance that's a person who doesn't really know what they're doing, but they think that they're smarter than everybody else because that means they're not going to take advice. It means they're going to make bad decisions rashly. They're not going to think things through. And you end up where the Jets and the Knicks are. And I wish I, there was a better answer, but I think that's the answer. You know, when, it, when you're talking about being an owner in professional sports, it's really about getting a handful of big decisions right. And the Jets and the Knicks have shown no ability to get those handful of big decisions right. And part of the reason is that the ownership meddles in smaller decisions. Our next question here, Joe asks, with Flacco potentially starting week five, what are some reasons to actually watch the game this week? The, pra the prospect of watching Flacco hand the ball to Frank Gore 20 times doesn't sound too entertaining. No, it does not, Joe. And I've been trying to think of reasons to watch this game. And I got to be honest with you, if it wasn't for the fact that I have to do this and you know, I, I have to write about the Jets and I have to do a podcast about the Jets, I'm not sure I'm watching this game this weekend because it is it's not going to be pleasant. Um, you know, to the extent you, you you have reasons to watch it, maybe see how Quinn and Williams does. Quinn and Williams has been up and down this year. He's had two kind of bad games and then two game one game, which was great against San Francisco when one game last weekend where. I mean, he committed some penalties, so I can't say it was a great game, but he was disruptive. He, I thought he was very disruptive against Denver. I thought he actually, if, aside from the penalties, which you can't take away, but aside from the penalties, he was pretty disruptive. You know, aside from that, maybe what I'm watching for is to see whether the offense has any sort of decline. And it's difficult to imagine the offense declining, but you, rem you remember what that offense looked like with Trevor Simeon and Luke Falk last year. And I just remember... Those three games, how just awful the Jets' offense was. It was worse than anything you saw with Sam Darnold last year. And it kind of showed you how little Darnold had to work with. And I wonder whether we're going to see the same thing, where maybe we'll see an offense that can't even get a first down the way we did last year. And if we do, maybe that's the type of thing that perhaps uh, lets Darnold off the hook a little, a little bit for how inconsistent he's been at the start of this season. Built Bar is not inconsistent. It's even more delicious. There are now 18 amazing flavors, including six new flavors and the 12 original flavors. Bars are covered in 100% chocolate, and they're soft and easy to chew. Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, and high-fiber. 
Peanut butter has 19 grams protein, 180 calories, 5 grams sugar, 5 grams net carbs, while cookies and cream has 17 grams protein, 130 calories, 4 grams sugar, 4 grams net carbs. Go to BuiltBar.com right now and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON. It's one word, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N. For $10 off at BuiltBar, B-U-I-L-T-B-A-R.com. Locked on Jets podcast here on this mailbag Wednesday. Our next question. What are your thoughts on people rooting for the team to lose so that the Jets can get the number one overall pick in the draft? I think that it's not a great reason to root for the Jets to lose because generally speaking, people overrate the odds of hitting on the number one overall pick. People tend to think you're going to get an automatic Hall of Famer. And that's the case every year. Every year, the number one overall pick is going to be great. And frequently, it does not work out. The odds of hitting on the number one overall pick are much lower. I think people also overestimate the difference between the number one pick and the number two pick and the number three pick. Your odds don't go down that much when you drop down to two, three, four. So I I don't think it's a great reason. to. I understand people want Trevor Lawrence, but I don't think it's a great reason to root against the Jets. I think if you're going to take the mindset that you're rooting against the Jets, the reason you do it is... This ownership has shown that it cannot realistically evaluate the team. It, this ownership has shown you is looking for any excuse to keep this coach because this ownership bought into a total mirage 6-2 and two finish over the last eight games of last year. So you need this ownership to just be embarrassed to make a coaching change because they've shown that they will not do it unless they're totally embarrassed. They will make any excuse to keep this coach, no matter how ridiculous it is. So you don't want to give the put any idea into the co- this this ownership's mind that this coach is turning things around. I think if you're going to if you're going to root against the team, I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying if you're going to root against the team, I don't think you know rooting for the number one overall pick really is that that great of a rationale because the number one overall pick frequently does not work out, and there's not a great difference between it, the odds of hitting on the number one overall pick are higher than two, three, four, five but they're not that much higher. So I think that ultimately, if you're going to root against, I'm not saying you have to root against the Jets, but if you're going to root against the Jets, it's more that ownership can't, has shown it cannot be trusted to look realistically at the progress of the team. So they just need, it needs to be made obvious to them that a change needs to be made. Next question. I know that you're a big Mike Leach fan. Do you think the current Cardinals offense is a glimpse of what he would bring to the pros if given a chance? So Mike Leach is the head coach at Mississippi State. He's had successful tenures at Washington State and Texas Tech, and he's won there. And it's those are not easy places to win in college football. Not easy places to get great recruits. And he just he, week one of the college football season, he went into LSU on the road and beat the defending national champions. His, his first game at Mississippi State, and I've been a bit yeah. Mike Leach is along the way. Mike Leach has had a lot of offensive records in college football. He's been he's one of the best offensive mind. In fact, I would argue he. he he's the best offensive mind in the sport coaching at any level. And not only has Leach been great, Leach is the mentor of some brilliant offensive minds like Cliff Kingsbury, who played quarterback for him in college at Texas tech and Lincoln Riley. So Leach has been very influential in offense, building offenses in college football and his offensive concepts have started to move into the NFL. Cliff Kingsbury is the Cardinals head coach. I mentioned him. He played quarterback for Leach. He, he, he pretty much learned offense from Mike Leach. 
And that, of course, is the Jets' opponent this weekend. The Jets will be playing the Arizona Cardinals this weekend with Cliff Kingsbury. Now, I think for somebody like Leach, the challenges of coming to the NFL would be that his current system that he runs in college runs a handful of plays. You know, they essentially have a handful of core plays, and that's not that unusual for college offenses. That's not going to work in the NFL because against NFL defensive coordinators, if you only run like 15, 20 plays, they'll figure out how to defend them. The NFL is much more about matchups, creating matchups. In college football, you pretty much just put your guys on the field and you let them run your plays. In the NFL, you're, you're trying to get the matchups you want when you game plan. You know, you hear these stories about coaches sleeping in their office. That's really what the reason they do it is they're trying to figure out matchups. So, for example, Cliff Kingsbury is trying to figure out if I move DeAndre Hopkins in motion, maybe because of the way the defense is set up, I'm going to get him one-on-one against the linebacker. You're trying to create favorable matchups. So it's different. It's just it's. I think I think Mike Leach would have to adapt moving to the NFL because he, his offense would have to be more complex. I don't think he could just go with a handful of core plays. He would have to expand his playbook, and he'd have to learn how to utilize matchups. Now I think he could do it because I, again I think he is the smartest coach. I think he's he's doing what he has to do to win in college. But I think he could adapt in the NFL. He'd have to bring in the right coaching staff. I mean, the other thing about Leach, and the, the big reason he has never gotten a job, a big-time job despite his success, is he's got a weird personality. He's got a very strange personality, and he's had some, some ugly incidents in his past, you know, some, some controversial incidents in his past, so you'd have to check those things out. But I do think Mike Leach could work in the NFL. And, I mean, the other thing, the other thing that worries me about Leach is that as much as the NFL is a passing league, I mean, Leach has had some, through his history, has really, really hesitated to run the ball and hesitated to, to leave uh, extra blockers in to protect his quarterback. So I, I kind of worry he'd get, he'd get his quarterback killed in the NFL. But a guy who's as good of a coach as Mike Leach, I think, I think he's a guy who should be interviewed by NFL teams. The NFL teams should be looking to get at least get his perspective on offense. So, uh, you know, I think he, I think he'd, I think he'd have a shot to work in the NFL, but there would be changes he'd have to make. I think, you know, Cliff Kingsbury has had to make changes the way he runs his system in the NFL. It's not the same as, as, as what you do in college. I think, you know, in college, a lot of the struggle a lot of coaches have when they come from college, and this is another issue that could be an issue with Leach, who spent his entire career in college. It's different when you are the highest paid person. You know, college players don't really get paid. The head coach makes millions of dollars in these college programs, which means the, co- the, the head coach gets to do whatever he wants. The head, co- the head coach can yell at his players. You know, the head coach is in charge. In the NFL, it's different. The NFL is a player's league. The players are the highest paid on the team. If Aaron Rodgers gets into a fight with Mike McCarthy, Mike McCarthy gets fired. You have to approach players. Players are professional. They know what they're doing. You know, they're, they're older. They're more mature. You have to treat players differently. It's a different sport, but I remember reading in basketball how uh, Jay Wright, who was the coach of Villanova, great college coach, uh, was coaching the United States team in some international tournament a year ago. And Steve Kerr, who was the coach of Golden State Warriors, was also on that staff. And Jay Wright started yelling at one of the players, and Steve Kerr kind of pulled him aside and said, you know, Jay, you can't yell at the pros like that. You have to... Yeah, you have to take a different tone when you're dealing with pros. You can't you can't yell at them all the time. So I think there's an adjustment. I think you know another thing that I think is an adjustment for college coaches, which is not necessarily the case for pro coaches, is in college 
Uh, not necessarily the, it's also not necessarily the case for Leach, but in college, a lot of the great offensive minds build their offenses around the run game, which you can do in college. And the pros, your offense really kind of has to be built through the pass. Now you can run, you know, you can run to set up the pass, but the pass has to be a big part of your offense. The, the pass has to be at the core of your offense, which I don't think is necessarily true in the college game. And somebody like Chip Kelly failed in the NFL for a lot of reasons. I think one of the underrated reasons is that when he came to the NFL with the Eagles those first couple of years, he ran the ball really effectively, and his offense was based on the run. Now, at Oregon, they destroyed teams. When he was in college at Oregon, he destroyed teams through tempo. You know, They ran the ball, and they played up-tempo, and they snapped the ball really quickly. Well, when you're playing up-tempo, you don't want to put too many complex ideas into the minds of the wide receiver. You know, if you're trying to snap the ball as quickly as possible, you can't have the receivers have to wonder which of these 30 routes I'm running. So there was a very simplified route tree at Oregon. You know, his receivers didn't have to run as many routes because again, they're trying to get up the ball and snap it, which means you have to limit the number of routes your receivers run. Cause you don't want your receivers thinking which route do I have to run? You want them to be able to, to just know what they have to do. Maybe one of three, four routes and just go. And I think what happened, one of the things that happened with the Eagles is once they stopped being able to run the ball with Chip Kelly, then they had to lean more on the passing game. I'm not sure there was enough sophistication in the routes that they ran to, to beat NFL defense. It's just always been my read on the situation. I'm not sure whether I'm right on that. But So I think there are challenges when you're talking about Mike Leach or any college coach. But I do think a long way to say I do think Mike Leach could be a pretty good coach in the NFL if given the chance. Locked on Jets podcast here on this Mailbag Wednesday. Next question, your choice. Would you rather have a coach that reports to the general manager or a coach and general manager both reporting to a team president? Which way do you think fixes the team structure? I took the coach calling all the shots out of the equation because with Douglas's contract, I think that's not a choice. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think that they're going to bring in a coach who will oversee Joe Douglas right now. Um, to answer the question... Either structure can work in theory. The Chiefs actually have a structure where both Andy Reid and their general manager, Brent Veach, Brett Veach, report to the owner. So you can't say, I see people saying every other team has the general manager in charge. That's not really true if you look across the league. It's a pretty, what the Jets have is a pretty common setup. The issue is who the, whom they are reporting to. This structure can only work if you have an owner, a CEO who knows what they're doing and who's engaged with the team, and who isn't going to wait until his general manager spends record amounts in free agency to do a deep dive on how the general manager is doing. That's the issue. The issue is not so much the structure itself. It's the guy who's in charge of the structure. If you're going to have an owner like Chris Johnson, you have to put somebody else in charge. So I think that it could work if you have both the head coach and the general manager on equal footing reporting to somebody, but the Jets need a new CEO. So you know, if you want to hire a team, you know, call him a team president and put him in it has to be a football guy i mean we're not talking about a business guy typically your team president is a business guy if you want to put somebody in charge like a director of football operations and have douglas and the new head coach report to them that's fine if you want to have douglas oversee everything i'm fine with that too i just think that the it i don't think the issue is so much the structure per se as it is you have a structure where both you have two guys reporting to chris johnson and chris johnson's just not the not the type of owner who can succeed with that type of structure because you end up in a situation like you have now like you've seen so many times with the Jets through the years where the head coach and general manager have different objectives the general manager is clearly thinking about the future right now the offseason the Jets had 
was clearly not a, not a, an off season where the Jets felt they needed to build to win in 2020. Whereas the head coach really needs to win right now. So you create this tension. You've seen it through the years. That's what happened with Rex Ryan and John Idzik. You create these different incentive structures, and it causes problems. You've seen it cause problems within the organization. So I, I don't think it matters so much what the structure is itself. I just think what matters is that this current structure can't work unless you bring in a director of football operations to oversee everybody. They can't, we can't have everybody reporting to Chris Johnson. If, they're going, if you're going to do things this way, you have to do things through a director of football operations. Our next question. With the Falcons firing Dan Quinn soon, will the Johnsons feel pressure to act when the other teams are moving on from coaches? I don't think so. I mean, you would have thought they, you would think that the losing would make more of a difference than in making sure you fire your coach when other teams are doing it. I mean, that's just my read. I don't think the Johnsons really care that much about the NFL. I got to be honest with you. I don't know whether the Johnsons follow the NFL that closely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know any other way to uh, say it. Next question. Could the Jets releasing Kalen Balazs be a sign that Gase and Joe Douglas are not getting along? Perhaps Joe Douglas would like to see P. Ryan more, but Gase isn't following suit. It would seem odd to me that Gase would play Balazs so much last game and want to release him soon after. This this could be Douglas's way of trying to force Gase to use P. Ryan. What do you think? You know, it's it's funny that you say that because I'm not sure that that's the case. I mean, I think we're just kind of guessing when it comes to something like that. But I was talking about the the way the Jets were using Frank Gore and how. The only way to get the only way to stop Gase from using Frank Gore is to get rid of one or two of them, either cut Frank Gore or fire Gase. And it reminds me a bit if you ever saw the movie Moneyball, how and I don't think this actually was was what happened with the Oakland A's. I think that this this part was embellished a little bit, but you may remember if you ever saw the movie that Billy Bean essentially trades Carlos Pena because he, it's the only way he can get Art Howe to stop playing him. And I don't think that's exactly what happened in real life with the Oakland A's, but it was in the movie. And I, I started thinking about it. That might be the only way to get this guy to stop playing Frank Gore. And you might be able to say the same thing about Balage. Now, one thing is, why would Gase be inclined to cut Balage after playing him so much last game? Well, Gase watched the film last game, and I'm sure Gase saw that Balage was not very good. So I would not be surprised to, I would not be surprised to find that if... Gase, I would not be surprised to find that Gase wanted Balazs out because of how poorly he played last game. So that, you know, I, I don't think after the way after the way he played, I wouldn't be shocked if Gase was behind the, the decision. But one thing I think Joe, I think one of the most fair criticisms of Joe Douglas is that he has to stop making moves just because Gase wants them. And we've seen this, and we, how many we've seen this? We saw this even when McCagnan was here, how they were signing players with a history of Gase, and. This has to stop, you know, and you look at, you hear, you can always kind of tell because the announcers talk to the coaching staff before the games and they talk about which players the coaches really like. Alex Lewis was a guy, Jets re-signed him this offseason. You, you heard constantly how much of the Jets coaches loved Alex Lewis. Ryan Griffin was another guy. You're Ryan Griffin, who's become the master of the three-yard reception in the flat. The Jets loved him, so they gave him a contract extension not bringing much to the table this year. So Douglas has to stop making moves because Adam Gase wants to make wants him to make them. And I'll say this. I know Douglas and Gase have been friends in the past, but sometimes you've got to put that aside. 
you know, I think one of the things that really derailed Todd Bowles with the Jets was a friendship. When he kept he kept Casey Rogers as defensive coordinator all four years, even though Casey Rogers was not up to the job of de- being defensive coordinator, and that makes Todd Bowles a good friend, and it makes Todd Bowles it might even make Todd Bowles a good person, but it also made Todd Bowles a bad head coach in the NFL. And Joe Douglas may be friends with Adam Gase; they may have had a working his relationship together. And Joe Douglas is not going to have the final decision on whether Adam Gase stays or goes, but he certainly will have influence. He certainly will have influence when he talks to the ownership. And I think there's a question, is Joe Douglas going to let a friendship get in the way of him being a successful general manager of this team, the way Todd Bowles let a friendship get in the way of him being a successful head coach for the New York Jets? Our next question, if Darnold sits, Flacco comes in and the team plays well, does that mean, what does that mean for Darnold? Do you keep playing Flacco? Would that be a statement from the teams, from the team and coaches on their attitude, on their attitude towards either quarterback? Well, I don't think it would be a statement on anybody's attitude. But look, if Flacco comes in and wins games and plays well, you have to stick with the best quarterback. Now, I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think Flacco can play at all. But in the theoretical world where Flacco's playing well, no, I don't think you put Darnold back in just because he drafted him third overall. If Flacco's playing better than Darnold, Flacco should play. I think sometimes people overthink this. They want the young player in there. Well, the young player needs to earn his spot. The young player needs to show he's the he's the best option. So if Flacco comes in and plays better, and I'm not expecting that to happen because I don't think I don't think Flacco is better than Darnold. I don't think Flacco brings anything to the, to the table. But yes, if Flacco came in and played effectively, he should remain the starter. And our last question: Could hiring Bill O'Brien to replace Gase be a viable midseason move for the Jets to make, and would it benefit Darnold's development? Noting Watson's solid play under Bill O'Brien last season. I guess that's like the locked on Jets version of the Mike Francesa, Jason Giambi calls. You are. We now have somebody who's never allowed to ask a mailbag question again after that one. Oh my goodness! <laughs> You're going to ask me if Bill O'Brien could would be a viable midseason replacement for Gase. That's that's how we're going to end this show. Always end the show on a strong question. That's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy our show, subscribe to it and leave it a good review. I hope you have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.